0: Good evening all you pasty eaters and trash aficionados. Yes, welcome back to the podcast of the Nasty Pasty. Here we dispense with decorum and forget the frippery. We simply cover horror movies that should have been classed as video nasties during the moral panic in the 80s. But they weren't, exposing the rather arbitrary and mindless thought process of the DPP and the MPs in charge. This is now our 22nd episode, and after our Mondo theme of last week... I'm glad to get back to something a bit more conventional. Well, at least structurally, anyway. So this week, we're covering two horror pictures focused on creepy crawlies who wreak terror on small towns. It's Slimy Invertebrates Week, so to that end, we're going to be terrorised by man-eating worms in 1976's Squirm, and carnivorous slugs in 1988's Slugs. I guess they could be classified as creature features, but I'll do a brief rundown of the use of animals as antagonists in horror for you, something which is commonly known as natural horror films. So animals running riot and killing humans can be traced back to something as early as 1925 with The Lost World, but the first picture to garner any sort of critical or commercial success was Alfred Hitchcock's film with his 1963 picture The Birds. One of the groundbreakers, however, was the famous Jaws by Steven Spielberg, released in 1975 to major success. Now, Plenty of imitations followed suit with 1976's Grizzly or 1978's Piranha. Almost every major animal group has been covered over the years in varying tones and styles. Included, but not limited, are Amphibians in 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon and 1976's Frogs. There's Arachnids in Arachnophobia, Kingdom of the Spiders, Tarantulas, the Deadly Cargo, and Ticks. Birds Attack People in The Birds, Uh, Birdemic, Shock and Terror, Uh, Crabs Do in Attack of the Crab Monsters, a a variety of fish in Piranha, its sequel Piranha 2, Uh, Deep Blue Sea, Barracuda, and Humanoids from the Deep. Insects Attackers too, like Ants from Empire of the Ants, and 1954's Them. Uh, bees in The Swarm and Killer Bees, uh, cockroaches in The Nest and The Mimic films, and even wasps from The Wasp Woman and The Food of the Gods. Bears attack in Grizzly and Prophecy, whilst Man's Best Friend attacks in Cujo, 1976's Dogs, and Dogs of Hell. Cats attackers in The Uncanny and The Uninvited, uh, apes from Shriek of the Mutilated or Snow Beast, there's rats in Rat's Night of Terror or Graveyard Shift, an octopus attacks in tentacles from 1977, a crocodiles attack in Lake Placid, Jurassic Park gives us killer dinosaurs, uh, rattlers, anaconda and spasms host killer snakes, whilst Day of the Animals from 1977, as well as the aforementioned frogs, has an entire menagerie of killer critters. As you can see, there's not many species that the big screen has not tried to turn into killers, all of which tend to be depicted as gone murderous due to human intervention. Quite often, it's due to pollution of the environment, such as waste material, radioactive dumpings, or chemical spills. But sometimes, the animals are directly created as a result of scientific experimentation, such as genetic modification or selective breeding. Stereotypically, the protagonist of such films will become aware of the danger quite early on and will attempt to warn the authorities, only to be batted back with some pathetic excuse – People only begin to take notice of the danger when the film's body count is quite significant, and then there's a grand scheme executed to destroy the animals once and for all. While it's usually successful, it's also usual that the final scene will reveal the animal surviving, either due to a final specimen remaining alive, or that the creatures laid eggs or given birth, hinting at a potential sequel. So now that we're refreshed with the idea of creature features, let's delve into our first offering, which is 1976's Squirm. In the small town of Fly Creek, a raging thunderstorm causes the power lines to be destroyed, sending the electrical current into the ground and rendering the town without power. Naomi, along with her daughters Jerry and Alma, discover the lack of power in the morning and attribute it to the freak storm. Jerry asks local bait seller Roger to lend his truck in order to pick up her boyfriend Mick, who's travelling from the city to browse antiques. They meet in the woods and drive to the shops to pick up some ice, with Mick trying a chocolate soda at a local bar, only to find that it has a bloodworm in it and falling foul of the sheriff, Jim Reston. Upon their return home, Roger is being chastised by his father, Willie, for lending the car out, as all of the worms in the cargo area have suddenly escaped. Jerry takes Mick to see antique dealer Beardsley, but they only find a skeleton in the back garden. Upon returning with the sheriff... The skeleton has disappeared, and the pair subsequently find it again in Roger's truck. Jerry and Mick take Roger to go fishing, and after a worm bites Mick, he leaves to investigate the skeleton again with Alma. They break into a dentist's office with the skull and find out that it is in fact the remains of Beardsley. Meanwhile, back at the lake, Roger says that he has a surprise for Jerry, and begins to kiss her against her will. She pushes him off only for the worms in his bait box to suddenly attack him, burrowing deep into his face, causing him to run off. Jerry recounts this to Mick and Alma, who tell her of Beardsley's demise. Jerry and Mick also travel to Roger's bait farm in order to put the skull back, but are shocked to find Willie's corpse riddled with the worms. Later on, Naomi makes the three dinner, and they all sit down to eat it when an old tree from outside suddenly falls down and destroys the dining area. Mick looks outside and sees hundreds of worms burrowing out from under the tree, and they disappear almost as soon as they appeared. Mick then deduces that the damned power cables in the town are sending electricity in the ground and driving the worms out in a frenzy, only retreating because it's daytime and they're highly photosensitive. He runs off to fetch timber in order to board the house up as it will be dark soon, whilst across town the worms swarm and attack people as darkness breaks, killing the sheriff and his lover, as well as an entire bar's worth of patrons. On the way back to the house, Mick is attacked by the still-alive Roger, whose face has been maimed by the worms and he's been driven mad. Back at the house, Alma and Jerry try to calm Naomi as she's starting to descend into madness. Alma tries to run a shower, but worms only descend from the showerhead. Returning to the bathroom, she's overcome by a huge flood of worms that have entered the building and is seemingly killed. Downstairs, Jerry goes to check on her sister and is grabbed by the now enraged Roger. Naomi, distracted by knitting, fails to notice the huge amount of worms that are getting into the house. Mick awakes just as night falls as the worms are about to reach him. He burns his shirt in order to get back to the house and discovers Naomi's worm-ridden body still on the chair, the living room absolutely full of writhing worms. He's attacked by Roger upon going upstairs and manages to throw him into the living room of worms, seemingly killing him. Rescuing Jerry, the pair try to leave by using an upstairs window, but are shocked when Roger, still alive and now with more worms burrowed into his body, attacks them and bringing the worms with him. The pair manage to get outside and stay the night in the tree, the ground completely overrun with the bloodworms. The next morning, they're awoken by a mechanic, who explains the power lines have been fixed and that the electricity should be restored now. There's no trace of the worms anymore, and inside the house, a chest in the bathroom opens, and Alma emerges, having dived in there when the worms attacked. She reunites with Jerry and Mick as the film ends. Mr. Reston wants to pick up a little something from Mrs. Reston. Mm. Mr. Reston, we were just looking for you. Well, this is my friend, Rick. Yeah, we've met. We found a skeleton back in Mr. Beardsley's. Sure, to Beardsley, he'd give you top dollar for it. He wasn't around. I think you ought to take a look at it. I intend to, fell. Which way? Round the back. It's right over here. Now, listen, fella, I don't know what you're up to. But you sure as hell ain't gonna pull this bull and fly Creek. I want you the hell out of this town. But it was right here, Mr. and We both saw it. Now, Jerry, that's enough. I'd expect this bull from your sister, but not you. Your daddy was real proud of you. And if he were alive and saw you now, he'd tan your fanny. She didn't do anything. Well, I'm gonna let this go, because it's too hot. And <sighs> I'm too busy to book this little city weasel. I got goddamn time to put back together again. But if I see you even one more time, you won't even be able to call a city lawyer, because all the phones are dead. Squirm was technically the first outing for director Jeff Lieberman, who'd previously only released a short film in 1972 called The Ringer. Now in the 1970s, animal attack movies had become popular, especially in the wake of Spielberg's Jaws in 1975. Lieberman got the idea for the film from some of his childhood escapades with his brother. A particular incident occurred when the pair hooked up a transformer that was intended for a train to the wet soil around them, driving the electricity into the ground and bringing out hundreds of worms to the surface, only for them to try and escape the glare of the boys' flashlights. He wrote the script in 1975, inspired mainly by the plot of 1963's The Birds, and he originally wanted the film's scenes to be set in a New England town, but budgetary limitations forced him to set the film in Georgia instead. The house used as the Sanders' home was a southern colonial era house that looked exactly as it appears in the movie, with the exception of the dining room area, which was a fake extension constructed especially for the tree destruction sequence. Beardsley's house was also pre-existing before the movie was shot, and it was notably considered an infamous haunted house. Principal photography began in December of 1975 in Port Wentworth, Georgia, and it took just 24 days to complete. R.A. Dow, who played the character of Roger, actually moved to Port Wentworth a few weeks before shooting began, in order to get a feel for the southern nature of the people, whilst Jean Sullivan, who played Naomi, exaggerated her southern accent due to both the location of proceedings, but also because she was a huge fan of the plays of Tennessee Williams. The scene in which the tree falls and smashes into the Sanders dining room was achieved by doing exactly what it looks like. They literally felled a tree and hung it by a crane to drop it on cue. The actors were really running for their lives when it fell into the dining area, with several crammers placed inside the set to maximise the amount of footage from the scene. Because of the expensive nature of the scene, they could only do the one take, but it actually turned out rather well. When Willie's corpse is found by Mick, this effect was achieved by burying actor Carl Dagenhart in the ground, with a fake body consisting of a skeleton, clothes, and hundreds of worms attached to him to give the impression of a decaying body. The scene with Naomi knitting and the worms dripping through the roof was actually filmed in reverse. A mock-up of the ceiling with a hole in it was constructed and the worms were dropped onto it. When the footage was reversed, it appeared as though the worms had climbed through the hole and were purposefully dropping onto the floor. While this was a win for the photography, a fail occurred when some of the footage came back from the processing lab and it turned out to be someone's random wedding. It transpired that the film lab had actually mixed up footage reels and therefore accidentally sent the newlyweds establishing shots of bloodworms. While I'd assumed the film would be about killer earthworms, I was surprised to notice that the worms in this are anything but. They are in fact American bloodworms, or Glycera Americana, which I'm unfamiliar with, living in the UK, but I believe they actually can bite, and they're used mainly in real life for saltwater fishing as bait. The amount of worms used in the production of squirm is unknown, as one shipment contained roughly 250,000 per container, and they would have had several shipments throughout the shoot, so much so that the supply of fishing worms for the New England area was pretty much depleted completely. The creepy sounds of the worms were created using recordings of screaming pigs in abattoirs that were electronically altered to stretch the sound out. For a film of the 70s, Squirm certainly does not push the graphic violence as much as some of the other splatter movies around the same time, but it does excel, however, in giving us some great stock characters in the forms of the Sheriff and Roger, whom viewers will love to hate. The sheriff, a proper pervert who touches the ass of a waitress and sleazily fucks his lady in a jail cell, is suddenly hostile when a guy from the city has a genuine worm inside his egg cream, whatever that is. Roger, however, is far more interesting, not so much for his depth, as he's quite a shallow, buffoonish sort of brute, but for his contribution to the plot. While he clearly has designs on Jerry, he's attacked by worms after she rejects him and he flees into the woods. For some reason, quite contrary to the explanation of the Worms' strange behaviour, he almost becomes a conduit for the Worms, and he's notably the only victim of the Worms to survive his initial attack. He seems aware, but he's intensely rageful, and when Mick throws him into the flood of Worms at the Sanders' house, he inexplicably survives that too, with more Worms burrowing into him for one final attack on Mick and Jerry. It's interesting how he's used in almost a supernatural sort of way by the Worms, Almost like he's been parasitised into acting like an assassin. Regardless, the real Shine out characters are Jerry and Mick, both rather sweet in their innocent fondness for each other. Even Alma, who's clearly more rough and troublesome than her meek sister, is actually quite relatively charming in her disregard for the sheriff and in her smoking marijuana and aiding Mick in his investigation. It was actually genuinely surprising, though, to see her survive the events of the film, and I found I was actually kind of glad she had Notably, the ending of the film didn't feature a sequel-esque reference to the worms surviving, which, if anything else, was a little bit fresher than normal. While there are a few graphic surprises, like Willie's and Naomi's corpses being overridden with worms, and also the attack on Roger's face... The film opts to go for other visual shocks, like masses of writhing worms invading homes, a tree falling and almost crushing the Sanders family at the dinner table, uh, worms dropping through holes in the ceiling, and noticeably, them descending from a showerhead. The sound in the effects, though, are incredibly effective, from the disturbing worm screeches, the snicker-snack of them retracting from light, or the water-droplet-like sound of them filling up a room behind a door. Whilst Martin Sheen was briefly flirted with as a possibility for the role, the main protagonist, Mick, was actually played by Don Scardino. And he'd reappeared in 1980's He Knows You're Alone, but due to a prestigious theatre background, he actually went on to to directing Especially with a large repertoire of American TV, such as Law & Order and its spin-off Criminal Intent, and also the comedy Two Broke Girls. Patricia Piercy, who played Jerry, she reappeared in Starsky and & Hutch and The Rockford Files. Whilst Peter McLean, who played the gruff sheriff, he also made TV appearances in Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels, The Amazing Spider-Man, Starsky & Hutch, The A-Team, Murder She Wrote, Knots Landing, and etc. Et Kim Basinger auditioned for the role of Jerry, but she ended up losing out to Piercy. Quigley, the barman, was played by character actor William Newman. He's probably most recognisable as Mr. Sprinkles from Mrs. Doubtfire, the rather dull TV host of the kids' show about dinosaurs. He did make some other cameo appearances, though, in The Postman Always Rings Twice, uh, The Serpents and the Rainbow, and also 1996's The Craft. Barbara Quinn, who played the sheriff's bit on the side, she joined co-star Scardino in He Knows You're Alone, as well as Jeff Lieberman's Blue Sunshine, uh, the Armando Mastroianni slasher film The Killing Hour, and even a small role in Jaws 3D. Apparently, Sylvester Stallone was eager to join the film in the role of Roger, but he lost out to method actor R.A. Dow, who unfortunately had no other screen roles, as he was actually mainly a theatrical actor. Director Jeff Lieberman wrote and directed a couple of cult films, such as 1977's Blue Sunshine, uh, 1981's Just Before Dawn, a slasher picture, uh, Neverending Story 3 in 1994, and also Satan's Little Helper in 2004. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, and he attended the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and he produced commercials for a while as well. He wrote Squirm, and it was produced by three people, one of which is Joseph Baru, who'd join a number of the actors on their projects like The Killing Hour, He Knows You're Alone, and also Blue Sunshine. Edgar Lansbury also worked on the same selection of films, while the third producer, George Manassi, produced the TV movie Marabunta in 1998, which was about killer ants. He also went on to become a prominent production manager on stuff like Porky's 2 The Next Day, uh, Death Wish 3, Indecent Proposal, Lassie, uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Eraser, and 2002's Jowana Man. The music for Squirm was composed by musician Robert Prince, and he'd worked throughout the 60s on uh, American TV. He'd graduate from Squirm onto 1977's Snowbeast, which was about a killer Sasquatch, as well as some episodes of The Fantastic Journey and Wonder Woman. Now, Cinematography was done by Joseph Mangine. And he'd done some uncredited photography work on a film that we've covered before, uh, the hippie splatterfest I Drink Your Blood. He'd also worked as a director of photography on 1980's Alligator, a Jack Shoulders' slasher film Alone in the Dark, uh, The Exterminator Part 2, uh, Neon Maniacs, and also Alligator 2, The Mutation. The editor, Brian Smedley-Aston, was known for his producing work with British director James Kenham-Clark, notably on the British video nasty film Expose, which is sometimes known as The House on Straw Hill. He also did some other bits and pieces on films like 1990's Deadly Manor, or 1975's Rollerball with James Kahn. He was chosen by Jeff Lieberman as he was a fan of 1970's performance, which Smedley Aston had edited. And the special effects were done by the multi-talented Bill Milling, who performed various roles on a wide range of productions, such as the special effects I'm producing on Romano Scavallini's Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, Which was one of the nasties. He was a production executive on 2006's Lucky Number Slevin. He was a production supervisor on Debbie Does Dallas, a production manager of Resident Evil Retribution, and he also produced and directed a whole host of adult films. The film was released theatrically in both the US and the UK in July of 1976. Initially released uncut in the US, the distributor actually made slight cuts to the R-rated version in order to obtain a PG rating, and it was re-released later the same year. It's unknown which version was exhibited in UK cinemas, as the BBFC required no cuts themselves, but it is known that the scenes in question were the showering scene at the beginning, which was cut slightly for nudity, as well as the worms graphically boring into Roger's face. When it was televised in the 80s for American TV, a company in New York accidentally broadcast it in black and white. But rather than be affronted, director Lieberman actually found he enjoyed the film more in that format, and implored fans of the film to give it a try. I can see why, really. It would enhance the B-movie tone of the thing, and considering that it's not that bloody, I can't really see any loss of quality coming from watching it monochromatically. The film was released in VHS in the UK by Orion video in 1984, smack dab in the middle of the Nasties era. It is unknown, though, if it was the R-rated print, as the difference is only mere seconds, but the cover did feature a naked lady being attacked by the worms in the shower. This probably would have caused more of a ruckus than anything that's actually in the film itself, so it's possible that it did draw some ire for its explicit cover. It did receive a legitimate release, though, post-Cert era, in 1987, after the panic was over. So I assume it didn't cause any other problems. The uncut version, though, is now available in a wonderful Blu-ray and DVD Combro, from good old Arrow Video. It's notably, though, been rated 15, just showing how kind of inoffensive the film actually is. So that was Squirm. So let's get straight onto business with our next film, the killer gastropod movie, Slugs. (laughs) mm <laughs> On a lake, a couple are fishing when the boy falls into the water and is devoured by something unseen to his girlfriend's horror. Soon after, homeless man Ron Bell stumbles to the house where he's squatting and crashes on the sofa drunk, only to be suddenly attacked by something. Health inspector Mike Brady and his wife Kim are out for an evening with their friends Dave Watson and his wife Maureen, who's apparently drinking too much. The next day, Brady accompanies the Sheriff, Reese in order to evict Ron Bell from the derelict property, only to discover his heavily mutilated corpse and a series of slime trails. Upon his return to the office, he receives an angry phone call from a resident Mrs. Fortune, who is complaining of blocked drains. Sanitation inspector and friend of Brady, Don Palmer, investigates the sewers beneath the house to discover a clump of torn meat clogging the pipe, as well as something in the pipe that drags his dipstick from his hands. Later on that day, couple Harold and his wife Jean do some gardening, when slugs go into Harold's gardening glove. Putting it on, he's bitten by the creatures and struggles to get the glove off, having to hack it off with a hatchet. In the ensuing chaos, the greenhouse explodes, killing the pair. Upon returning home, Kim informs Mike of their demise, and also of their sudden problem of, with slugs in the garden. Reaching out to touch one, Mike is bitten by the slug and manages to catch one in a jar. Kim suggests they take it to fellow teacher Foley at the high school where she works, who remarks that it's a slug, but seemingly nothing more. Meanwhile, teenager Donna reunites with her boyfriend Bobby at her parents' house when they're out in order to play hockey while Maureen, drinking again, fails to notice a slug inside the lettuce that she's just brought home. After having sex, Donna and Bobby realise that the bedroom has become overcome with slugs, which devour them alive. With David returning home, Maureen hurriedly makes them a salad, failing to see the slug being chopped up as well. David subsequently suffers a headache and nausea throughout the night, and at a meeting the next day, his head graphically explodes with small worms bursting from his eye. Gathering evidence and returning to Foley, Brady and John suggest that the slugs are responsible. Foley, having seen one of the slugs attack one of his guinea pigs, concurs and suggests that a mutation has taken place, as the slug slime now seems to have a neurotoxic effect, and the parasite that slugs naturally contain have resulted in David dying the way that he did, with giant schistosomes emerging from him. Kim phones her husband and explains that slugs are starting to pour from the taps, having infested the water supply. Brady attempts to have the water inspector, Frank, shut the water off, but is refused. Frank is then subsequently killed when slugs emerge from his toilet and eat him. Brady tries the mayor, who ridicules the idea... And Foley explains that he's concocted a substance that will kill the slugs by igniting the moisture in their bodies. So he, Mike and Don formulate a plan to dump the stuff in the sewers where the slugs are breeding. At a Halloween party nearby, student Pam runs away from a creep who tries to grope her, only to fall through a sewer grill and end up being eaten alive by the slugs. Mike and Don reach the main breeding ground and discover thousands of the slugs, Don has an idea to electrocute them in order to gather them in one place, and he does so, causing them to rapidly flee into a filtration tank. The pair throw a bunch of meat into the tank until they can get Foley to dump the material, but Don is suddenly flung into the tank by a jet of water, and is devoured in the water. Foley manages to finally dump the substance, igniting the entire sewer system, and destroying the slugs once and for all. Mike reunites with Kim as the fire department shows up to quell the fire. Just out of sight, a lone slug slides over a grill covering, with the fires blazing in the sewers below. John? Gim, Mike, what are you two doing here? eh? Sorry to bother you, John, but, um... John, I want to ask you some questions about these. What's this? What is that stuff, anyway? It's like mucus, you see. Only the slugs use it as an irritant for its natural predators. It is also the way the buggers get around. They travel on it. It's like a like a slimy carpet. I read somewhere that you can actually put a snail or slug on the edge of a razor blade, and it can crawl right across it without ever touching the metal. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, that's terrific. How does it eat? It has three or four rows of teeth that it uses to grind up its food. Which is? Greens, mainly. Lettuce, cabbage, things like that. Anything that grows in the garden is a feast for them. That's why gardeners hate them so much. John, these things ever eat meat? I beg your pardon? Well, you know, like, uh, meat, animals. But, but they're usually only as big as your thumb, Mike. <laughs> However, there are some species which do eat tiny worms and insects. Why do you ask? John, let's uh say I'll call you in the morning, okay? Alright. Make it after lunch, Thanks. okay. Mm-hmm. Based on the 1982 novel, Slugs is a rather squirm-inducing bucket of blood that is as gory as it is fun. Directed by Juan Picure Simon, who gave us the equally gory and silly pieces. Slugs depicts the invasion of a small American town by carnivorous mutant slugs, who devour humans, or at least cause their deaths, in incredibly graphic methods. Sean Hudson, the British author of Slugs, took inspiration from the paperback nasties of the UK around the same time, things like Guy Smith's Night of the Crabs or James Herbert's The Rats. The original source material was actually not so different from the film adaptation, but it was notably set in the fictionalised British town of Merton, other elements that didn't make it to the film was the slug's slime, which apparently once ingested drive the victim into a mad frenzy, with one little girl who tastes it suffering a seizure before tearing her mother's throat out with her teeth. Another scene has a little boy watches pet rabbit get devoured by hungry slugs, whilst another scene has Don and Mike purge Ron Bell's house of the slugs first before descending into the sewer. A scene that was changed a little, though, from the novel was the teenage couple being killed by the slugs. Donna originally dies when the slugs actually crawl inside her and eat her from the inside, whilst Bobby, who's actually called Clive in the novel, is killed when he jumps from the bedroom window and is impaled on a shard of glass. But other than that, the screenplay by Ron Gantman is quite faithful to the source material. Filming began at the end of 1986, with five weeks being spent in New York to film the exteriors. Very few sets were constructed for the film due to this agreement to film part of the film in the US, which had supposedly come about because of producer Francesca De Laurentiis, daughter of the famous Dino De Laurentiis, who was able to hire camera equipment from De Laurentiis Studios in North Carolina for a reduced price. Sometime in 1987, the shoot was located to Madrid in order to film the interior shots, A notable exception to the set's rule was actually the sewer filtration tank where Don meets his demise. The set was actually reconstructed on a smaller scale, no bigger than a coffee table surface, consisting of just a pipe overhead and a rounded wall at the back. This was then filled with water, and it actually had battery-operated figurines wearing the yellow suits that are seen in the film, and this was used for the shots of when Don is attacked underwater and some of the splashy explosive shots when Foley's concoction is dumped. Spanish actor Emilio Landa was shocked when they were filming the restaurant scene, as he actually noticed a lady at another table who resembled his childhood icon Silvana Mangano. It turned out that it was in fact her, and Landa enjoyed meeting and talking to her after the scene had wrapped. The set was rather relaxed and fun, with the crew remembering one procure Simon rather fondly. He apparently dressed in stereotypical director garb, like a beret, uh, sunglasses, riding pants, crop and a cigarette holder, which amused the crew and kept the atmosphere on the film quite fun. Although the director of the picture, the actors were actually trusted by Picure Simon, and left pretty much to their own devices on the shoot, as he dedicated most of his attention to the film's prominent special effects. One of the most memorable effects is when Donna and Bobby are attacked in their bedroom, with Donna being quickly overcome by the greedy gastropods. The slugs biting her back was achieved using a sheet of piglet skin, which was used for its incredible resemblance to human skin. Small pistons filled with stage blood poked out from underneath the thing, and fake slugs were attached to the opening on the fake skin. The pistons were then poked out and stage blood was squirted, giving the impression that it was actually the slugs that were doing this. It is rather effective, especially combined with Donna's eyeball dangling from her socket. Due to the rather practical messiness and the sheer amount of slime that they had to use, the carpets in this scene were covered with garbage bags in order to prevent damage. David's head exploding was achieved by casting a mould of the actor Emilio Lander's face and rigging it with a small explosive pack filled with stage blood and fake slugs. Interestingly, the same brand of mould, more similar to the ones that dentists would use rather than just plaster, was actually used by Carlo Rombaldi during the making of King Kong. They could only shoot the scene once because of budget restraints, but it was so successful they only really needed to do the one take. The scene of the slugs racing away after being electrocuted was achieved using a barrel of fake slugs, which was coated in oil and poured down a slide contraption, which was designed to look like a sewer channel, and it was also perspectively to appear parallel to the ground rather than just looking slanted. The electricity effects were then added later in post-production. A special effect that was cut, however, despite the model being produced and everything, was the appearance of a queen slug which was supposed to be much larger than the others, and it was actually designed to be able to turn inside out. It was presumably meant to be encountered by Don and Mike in the film's climax, but, as I said, it was actually cut from the film. The stars of the show themselves, the slugs, were a mixture of real banana slugs that were indigenous to the local area, as well as some fake foam shapes that were cut into S's. Small bay eels, called elvers, were also used, especially in the scenes of David's head exploding, to portray the schistosomes, as well as the baby slugs on Ron Bell's corpse when discovered. The sheer amount of technical skill and graphic brutality of the gore was well rewarded when the film was actually nominated for the Best Special Effects Award at the 1989 Goya Awards in Madrid, and it eventually won the accolade, something which is actually kind of equivalent to a Spanish version of the Oscars. Now this film is actually one of my big favourites, mostly due to the incredible special effects, the general campness and the funny aspects of the film, which make it a huge fun ride. The characters are lovingly cardboard and nonsensical, and the explanations for the event, in this case toxic waste dumping from many years ago, is suitably generic, but cheesy enough. Even our intrepid hero Mike, he returns home from work to find out that his neighbours have perished in a greenhouse explosion, and he says something along the lines of, Oh no, Those were really nice people. I liked them a lot. So what are you doing out here? Instantly forgetting the tragedy that he's just felt so bad about. Other golden moments are when the water inspector Frank shouts at Mike, You don't have the authority to declare happy birthday. Or Maureen declaring to her husband, I'm sorry I'm such a bitch. Another odd aspect is the dislike of people drinking alcohol. Maureen is chastised for being a heavy drinker, Although she does knock back a cognac or two when she comes home from shopping. I mean, who doesn't enjoy that? Whilst Donna is annoyed at Bobby for wanting a drink to recharge his batteries. And the sheriff in this movie is even more grouchy than the one from Squirm. There's literally no scene where he's happy at all, and he constantly puts his deputy under strain with insults. One minor problem I do have with the film, though, despite it not being a massively complex character is with Pam, the clever student who shows discomfort at being at the Halloween party. She's kind of pushed far by her boyfriend into having sex, because he wants to play the horizontal mambo, and he rejects her as a result. So she wanders off alone, and the guy's friend who's been perving on them basically tries to rape her in the woods. She escapes, but ends up falling into the sewers and gets eaten alive by the slugs. I just thought, what an unfair end to someone who's just been through enough, especially when the twats who try to assault her end up living. Compared to Jerry from Squirm, anyway, who rejects Roger's brutish advances and manages to survive, whilst Roger gets a face full of worms, as he quite rightly deserves. Main guy Mike is played by Michael Garfield, who'd appeared in the 1979 cult movie, another one of my faves, The Warriors, as one of David Patrick Kelly's thugs as well as The Sopranos, and also all three of the Lord and Order TV shows. Kim Terry, who played Kim, uh, there's a theme here, isn't there? Uh, She'd later appear in the soap opera Dynasty, whilst Alicia Monroe, who played Maureen, she appeared in 1983's Exterminators of the Year 3000, and also the slasher picture Edge of the Axe. Emilio Lander, who played the unfortunate Watson, would appear in a lot of Simon's films, like Pieces and also Extraterrestrial Visitors, and he ended up having quite a large, prolific Spanish TV career. Manuel de Blas, who played the crabby mayor, he'd been previously in the third Blind Dead film, The Ghost Galleon, while Frank Branagh, who played his namesake Frank... There's that theme running again. Uh, the unfortunate water inspector, who ends up on the toilet in the worst way, he previously appeared in Hitler's Last Train from 1977, and also Simon's previous slasher, Pieces. Patty Shepard, who played Sue in the film, she also appeared with her co-star Alicia Morrow in Edge of the X, as well as the thriller The Glass Ceiling from 1971, and the giallo-picture My Dear Killer. Now, as mentioned before, there's an uncredited cameo by veteran Italian actress Silvana Mangano as a restaurant customer. And she'd been in a variety of roles since the 40s, but one of her last true film roles was in David Lynch's 1984 picture, Dune. Now, we've encountered director Juan Picure-Simon on a previous episode when we covered pieces – Now, of course, he directed and wrote a multitude of cult films, including Slugs, Pieces, Extraterrestrial Visitors, Supersonic Man, and Manoa City of Gold. Whilst it was written by Simon and his colleagues, Ron Gantman and José Antonio Escriva, the film was actually mentioned before, based on a 1982 novel entitled Slugs by British novelist Sean Hudson. Now, Hudson also wrote a sequel entitled Breeding Ground, There was purported to have a cinematic adaptation too, but unfortunately this never came to fruition. Probably a benefit because Hudson actually didn't like this film version of Slugs. Producer Francesca De Laurentiis also worked as a script supervisor on Slugs, and she had some influence on other productions, like she was the continuity person on Conan the Barbarian, and she was also the production coordinator on the 90s TV series Zorro. Cinematographer Julio Bragado, he returned to work with Simon on two of his future projects, namely Manoa City of Gold, and also 1992's Cthulhu Mansion. The editing was done by veteran Antonio Gimeno, who'd worked since the 40s as an editor on things like Barva's Planet of the Vampires, or 1977's Curse of the Black Cat. Slugs was his final film, however. He was assisted by Richard E. Rabjohn who'd worked on a variety of American TV shows like Quincy, uh, The Fantastic Journey and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But the gloriously over-the-top gore effects were done by a bunch of talented people headed up by Carlo DiMarchis who'd worked on Argento's Deep Red uh, Ridley Scott's Alien uh, Sergio Martino's The Great Alligator and also 1982's Conan the Barbarian. He was joined by Basilio Cortijo who'd worked on Pieces and Cthulhu Mansion. There was Patrick Tantalo, who went on to Gremlins 2, Edward Scissorhands' Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Me, Myself and Irene, and also the reboot of Halloween 2 by Rob Zombie. There was Emilio Ruiz del Rio, who'd worked on Fulci's White Fang, uh, Lenzi's Iron Master, Lynch's Dune, uh, and Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. And finally, there was Roy Nyrim, who'd worked on the visual effects of The Abyss, uh, Tremors, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and he also did the special effects of Sam Raimi's Darkman. He worked on Children of the Corn, parts 4 to 6, Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, Toxic Avenger, parts 2 and 3, Wishmaster 2 to 4, and also the recent Sinister 2. Now, Slugs was released in 1988 in the US cinemas, but it seemingly had no theatrical exhibition in the UK. It did notably get a ban in the county of Queensland, Australia, due to its graphic violence... ...but the ban was abandoned after the censor board in the region was dissolved. Because of its lateness to the party as well, the film managed to avoid the video nasty scandal completely... ...but it couldn't avoid the censorship in the wake of it. Now, Cinema Club released slugs on VHS in 1989, but the BBFC demanded 43 seconds of cuts mainly to Donna's attack in the bedroom and the hacking of Harold's hand with the hatchet. This cut version was the only version available in the UK since, even with a 1993 release upholding the censor cut. Until finally, in 2009, Lionsgate released the film on DVD and the BBFC managed to waive its previous cuts, granting it uncut status for the first time in the UK. It's been that way ever since, with a very collectible pristine HD Blu-ray and DVD being released in 2016, scanned in 2K from the original negatives by the Great Arrow video. And that was Slugs Everybody, and it's the last film for this week, I'm afraid. So, thank you very much for listening. I do hope you've enjoyed this week's Creepy Crawly Creature feature. But next week, we're taking a very different tactic again. We're covering two silly films that have fallen under the radar in many ways for quite some time. It's a machine-themed week next week. And we're covering the action-packed Hands of Steel and the irresistibly titled Robot Holocaust. So join us next week for some more Nasty Pasty Madness, but until then, stay away from the worms and slugs. You never know about any stray electric currents or some long-dumped toxic waste. So for now, sayonara, peeps!